Father, there are, as we confess to you this day, countless beauties and countless cool things and amazing things, valuable things in this world. But Lord, we do ask that in a world filled with plenty, God, that you would help us in our hearts to find you greater than all of them. God, that you would be more precious, you would be a greater treasure than all the world can give combined. And yet at the same time, Lord, you also tell us that you have given us so many good gifts for us to freely enjoy. And you ask us to enjoy them ultimately for your glory. Lord, this takes great wisdom to know how to navigate the complexities of the world we live in where there are rapturous beauties, where there are just things we experience which take our breath away. And at the same time, we're called to not be totally committed to these things, but to see them and enjoy them and treasure them for your sake. So we need wisdom. Lord, we need to know how we can love the things of this world in a way that brings you glory. We need to know how we can enjoy the things of this world that does not rob you of your glory. You are the greater than anything in this world. And yet we are tempted, Lord, if we're being honest, we are tempted to not believe that. We are tempted to believe that having certain, a certain reputation is more beneficial in this life than you. We are tempted to believe that to have great money and great power is more beneficial in this life than you. We, we often believe, Lord, that there is so much that this world has to offer which is better than you. So Lord, we confess to you that we are frail. We confess to you this morning that we find it a challenge to live in this world in which you have given us great gifts because we are prone to worship the gifts rather than the giver. So God, would you reorient our loves? Would you remind us that you are indeed greater? Jesus has risen from the dead and he has promised because of his resurrection that there are promises and beauties and rewards and blessings beyond all compare. It's an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. God, orient our thoughts to these things. Help us as we come to your word to learn fresh what it is to know you and be in relationship with you. God, teach us more of who you are. Teach us how we ought to live in this world. God, teach us how we can glorify you in all things. God, teach us that you are a God who is holy, but also a God who is merciful, a God who is a father who deeply loves us, yet disciplines us for our good. These comp complex thoughts, Lord, sort them out for us, we pray. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Oh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. In case you are new to our church and I have not had the privilege of getting to know you or meet you yet, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. And uh, I just want to welcome you and thank you for being a part of uh, our worship gathering today. As you came in, you probably saw some little signs, uh, places, and you saw on the screen that there is a QR code. You can just take a picture of that. It'll take you to a link full of resources that will be helpful and beneficial. 
Um, you can find the sermon outline. You can find discussion questions. Uh, there's an opportunity to submit a prayer request. And also one of the things that is there is at the very top is that we have launched our new app. Now, um, that may not seem like much, but it's really important, and here's why. A lot of information that we give goes out in an email on Thursdays, and if you have ever unsubscribed to any of our emails ever before, then you are no longer getting those emails. And you're probably wondering, how come they don't ever let us know about this stuff? And it's because you're on the outs. Um, so I would encourage you uh, to uh, email the church and let them know you're not getting the Thursday email if you would like it. If you don't want it, that's fine. Um, but I do encourage you uh, to reach out to us so that way you can be put back on that list. Another way that you can get informed is through our website, lots of information there, but it's a very passive way to communicate. You have to go and search for stuff and you have to know what you're looking for. But in our app, what we're able to do is we're able to communicate. Um, you're able to sign up for events like women's ministry events, men's uh, ministry events, student ministry events, things like that. You can get information on upcoming uh, things that are happening at the church. And in real time, we send out push notifications, which means it'll come up on your phone. And when it comes up on your phone, it'll tell you, hey, this is what's happening. Here's what's happening. We will not and I promise you this, we will not be sending you like Amazon, just something every morning, afternoon, and evening. Uh, instead, we're only gonna communicate the things that are uh, needful um, to be communicated, and so we'll send that out. So when you download a, uh, the app, make sure that you select allow for when it asks you the question, um, do you want push notifications? Uh, allow it, say yes, and that way we can give you different information um, about that. So I highly encourage you to get the app. You're gonna be able to find all the sermons there. You'll be able to find, like I said, sign up for events. There's also lots of uh, information uh, just about the church and, and a whole host of things. So it's very significant. I wanna encourage you to do that. Um, today, as you leave and you look to your left, you'll see probably Pastor Bo behind a table, and he's there with a whole bunch of prayer guides. Now, we uh, have already begun this, but I wanna remind us we often pray for our church, we often pray for our nation, things like that, but also during this season, um, uh, leading up to Easter for us, or the Resurrection Sunday, uh, we are also praying for our Muslim neighbors. This is a season in which they are celebrating Ramadan and things like that, and so we spend 30 days uh, praying for our Muslim neighbors. There is a, an adult guide, there's a children's guide, there's a kid's guide, and for 30 days we commit ourselves to praying for our Muslim neighbors that the Lord would break through and reveal himself to them, maybe through uh, visions and dreams, um, or we pray that there would be missionaries and ministry partners around the world who would speak boldly, courageously, clearly, uh, just as the Apostle Paul said that he needs to preach, that would proclaim Christ. And so we pray for our missionaries, our ministry workers, we pray for our Muslim neighbors around the world that they would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I wanna encourage you as a church to grab one of these prayer guides, join us as we, uh, as we, yeah, as we intentionally pray that the Lord will be kind and favorable to our Muslim neighbors to bring them to himself. We are gonna continue our series in Hosea, Hosea chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to open it up to Hosea chapter 13. This book has been interesting. When I first started, I encouraged everyone, hey, go ahead and read Hosea and get yourself familiar, familiar with it. And Heather and I have had the privilege of going to a whole bunch of different small groups of our church talking with folks, and one of the things that we hear almost every single time is, when I first read Hosea, I didn't know what was going on. Um, and it was confusing, and I didn't know what was what, and I thought I understood it, and then you started preaching on it, and then I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. 
So uh, I appreciate that feedback because that's probably what you should feel. This is an ancient book. Um, it has a lot of metaphors. It has a lot of imagery. It has a lot of poetic uh, elements to it. And you and I, I hate to say it, there's a few of us maybe that are okay with poetry. But most of us don't like poetry. We don't get it. And we think it's lame. And so Hebrew poetry, poetry no chance. We're just like, forget it. I don't, I don't care. I don't understand it. Um, so that's complicated. It's also complicated, as I said in a sermon previously, because it's written from an Eastern logical perspective. We are Western logical people, which means by and large, we reason um, in a linear fashion. So we start with this truth and this truth and this truth and this truth, therefore, boom. But in Eastern logic, it's kind of circular. And I held up my phone one time and I was like, you see it? Okay, that's one perspective. Do you see it now? Oh, that's different. Oh, that's different. And that's what they do is they take one truth and it's almost like something you put on a lazy Susan or something like that and you kind of spin it around so that way you can get different aspects of it. Think about it if you've ever gone to a family meal kind of restaurant where the one dish you want's on the other side <laughs> and it spins around and it spins around. You're like, yeah. And then they spin it back the other way and you're like, nah, dude. It's kind of like that, where it's just kind of round, and you have to kind of wait for it to come around. So we've seen things like judgment. We've seen things like God's mercy. We've seen things like how God has been pleased to save. We've seen God's love. We've seen God's wrath. We've seen all this, but we've seen it from a bunch of different angles. God revealed himself as a husband. God has revealed himself as a father. God has revealed himself as a lion. And so each of these things is helping us get a fuller, understanding of who God is and how he interacts with the world. And so I've done my absolute best, and I know there's more lacking, um, more could be said and should be said, but that's the way it goes. But I've tried to do my best to bridge the gap between the ancient world of Hosea and what he wrote with the modern world in which we live today. And uh, hopefully you're learning more about this. By the time we finish next week, Lord willing, uh, Pastor Josh McCullers is gonna finish the book for us. Um, I, I encourage you, once we're done, go back and read Hosea again and see if your understanding of God, your understanding of how he works in the world, your understanding of the book of Hosea, your biblical understanding, see if it has grown. And I'm trusting that the answer will be yes. So Hosea chapter 13, we're gonna break it up into two main sections and then we're going to hightail it uh, to the end where we're going to see how it all fits together, shows us Jesus and a reason to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion. So the first section uh, will be in verses one through eight, and we'll look there how Israel's forgotten God, and ultimately it's going to result in their own demise, and then we'll look in section two, verses nine through 13, and there we're going to see how Israel is asking themselves the question, to whom can I turn for help? And then lastly, again, we'll turn to Jesus and see how he fits it, puts it all together. Verses one through three. Here's what Hosea writes. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Now when they, and now they sin more and more and make themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away. 
like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. What we see here in verses one through three is kind of a progression. Verse one talks about the guilt of sin and its consequences. Verse two talks about what happens when somebody is guilty of sin. And verse three is really about what God does in response. When you see in verse one, um, I read 11 different takes on the first two sentences. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. Uh, and the conclusion is there was 11 different perspectives. <laughs> and uh, I'm not smart enough to have my own perspective, so we'll move on. Israel, or Ephraim, the northern, tri- the northern collection of ten tribes that we've been talking about, they incurred guilt. That is to say, they became guilty. And how they became guilty, or they incurred their guilt, was through Baal. And what that's in reference to is Baal worship. Now, I've talked uh, at length about Baal worship. I talked about who Baal is Uh, So I won't go into great detail about that, but let me just kind of give you a refresher. Baal is a fertility god worshipped by the Canaanites. He was thought to be the one in charge of everything uh, fertility uh, related, such as crops, such as the multiplication of livestock, and the multiplication of family, so procreation. It was thought that Baal, being this fertility god, if you did the right things for Baal, If you said the right things, did the right things, you know, thought the right things, then this fertility God would bless you with a multiplication of crops or livestock or children. And so because Baal worship was all about fertility, the manner in which the worship took place was highly sexualized. In fact, when you read in the Old Testament, it'll talk repeatedly about how the nation went on various hilltops underneath green trees, and they played the whore. And what that means is they went up on these hilltops and there was disgusting, rampant sexual activity that was happening, which was a form of religious worship. Um, And that kind of sexuality uh, was not only religious in nature, but it became political in nature. Um, There's a lot of, I can't get into it, I shouldn't say it, but anyways, there's a lot of similarities to today. But anyways, It was thought that Baal, uh, since he was the provider of things like crops and livestock and children, since Baal was responsible for that, then there was an automatic denial that God, Yahweh, is the one giving those things. You see, you can't say God gave it and Baal gave it. You, you, You can't be a fence sitter. You can't have one foot in worldly thinking and one foot in, oh yeah, God's responsible. You gotta pick a side. And when you think that some things or many things or all things don't come from God but come from Baal, then you have to be a God denier. Uh, That is just a conclusion. Now what's interesting is these folks believed that since they would worship Baal in the right way, in the right manner, doing the right things, that they would receive all these blessings and benefits. It's kind of an Old Testament version of a prosperity gospel, which is you do the right things and you'll get right things in return. And so that leads to pride. 
It's like, look at me, I did the right things, therefore I got stuff. It leads to self-exaltation, which is, look at me, I did the right things, now I got all the right stuff. You ain't got the right stuff, you must have done something wrong. It leads to self-sufficiency, which is to say, man, I'm actually pretty awesome. Look what I did. I can do that and even more. And so Baal worship was basically destructive. And it was anti-God. Not only that, but then you see this, that the incurement of guilt, the fact that they became guilty through their false worship of Baal in opposition to their worship of God, the result is they died. Now, it doesn't take, uh, you know, like a scholar to understand that as Hosea was writing these things to this nation of Israel, and he said, you've done these things and you died, that he can't write this to people who are dead. They have to be alive in some way. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does he mean by dead? What does he mean by they died, past tense, if they're still alive in order to read it? So I think we can take our cue from Genesis 3. If you remember, Adam and Eve, they did something really stupid. They disobeyed God and they ate the fruit which was forbidden in the garden and they died. Remember, uh, the serpent comes to Eve and says, man, God's holding out on you. He's got all these blessings for you, but he's not letting you experience them. And of course, Eve corrects the serpent and says, no, 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 verse three, he said you shouldn't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And of course, the serpent who is Satan challenges Eve and says, no, no, you're not gonna die. In other words, God's lying to you. He has so much good stuff for you, he's just keeping it from you. Mm-hmm, just think about it. Why don't you just go and get yours? Just go get it. Don't wait for him to give it to you, go get it. And so, Satan tempts Eve by saying, God knows that if you ate it, man, your, your eyes will be opened up, everything changes. She's like, oh. So she sees that the fruit was good for food, delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. I mean, if God loves me, why would he keep me from something that would please me? That makes sense. So she took it, she ate it, she gave it to her husband who was sitting there like, ooh. <laughs> then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, previous to this, they were naked and unashamed. They just ran around the garden naked. In relationship with each other, God was present. They had no shame at all. And then all of a sudden, they eat, and they're like, don't look at me. And they make themselves clothes to cover their nakedness. And they heard God walking in the cool of the garden. And so Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. So God calls out, where are you? And Adam and Eve cry out, well, we heard the sound of you in the garden, and we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. And God asked the question, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And of course, this is typical. The man said, wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. <laughs> nah, she did it. And of course, the woman says, why are you pointing finger at me? It wasn't me. It was the serpent who did it. And then when you read on, I don't have it in the text here, but when you read on in verses 17 and 18, the consequence for Adam and Eve is that the world in which they lived became very difficult. 
Thorns and thistles grew up in the garden where previously was only bounty and fruitfulness. So let me summarize it like this. How in the world did they die? They died a million deaths, but it took them many years eventually for them to physically die. What I mean by this is what it, what it means to have true life is found in this text. Number one is this, that God created Adam and Eve in his image and he had relationship with them. They were rightly related to him before they ate the, the fruit. Not only that, but they were naked and unafraid and unashamed, which means they had a right relationship with themselves. They had a, a very clear, honest, truthful perspective of themselves. No shame, no guilt. And they had a great relationship with each other. They didn't bicker. They didn't fight. They weren't blame shifting. And they had a great relationship with the natural world around them. They was very fruitful. They worked in the garden and they were able to eat and live and enjoy it all. But the moment that they ate the fruit, if you remember, then all of a sudden everything changes. No longer do they look at each other naked and uh, unashamed. Now all of a sudden they're like, <gasps> And they're filled with shame. Not only that, but they hide from God. And then they start blaming each other. And then they experience the natural world in such a way that it becomes incredibly difficult for them to live in the world filled with thorns and thistles and having to work by the sweat of their brow. Let me summarize it like this. Firstly, when they were ashamed because of their nakedness, it was the evidence that they had died in their right relationship with themselves. When they were hiding from God, it is the evidence that they had died in their right relationship with God. When they were blame shifting, it's the woman who did it, it ain't my fault, they had died in their right relationship with others. And when God cursed them in the ground that they were going to work in their thorns and thistles and by the sweat of their brow, they died in their relationship to the natural world around them. So God created these relationships. We relate to God, we relate to ourselves, we relate to other people, and we relate to the natural world around us. Those things are embedded in creation. When we die, that means the relationship we have with God is ruptured. That means the relationship we have with ourselves is ruptured. That means the relationship we have with others is ruptured. And that means the relationship we have with the natural world is ruptured. In short, it's death. To die is to be cut off from a right relationship with all that God has created to be cut off from a right relationship with him, a right relationship with ourselves, a right relationship with others, a right relationship with the natural world. And of course, when you look back in chapter 13, verse one, they incurred guilt because of all of their false worship and they died. The death that they experienced, which is the rupturing of all of these intimate relationships, is the consequence or the wage of their sin. It's what they've earned for themselves. Just like Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
If you ever wanna ask yourself the question, what does it mean by death, what does it mean by life? I think it's too simplistic simply to say that your physical body has breath or it does not. Instead, I would say, no, 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 death is when you cannot and do not rightly relate to God, yourself, others, and the natural world around you. That's death. If you want to know whether or not you are dead, then you can ask yourself the question, how are your relationships to those four things going? But if you have life in Jesus Christ, then what you see in those four arenas, my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with others, my relationship with the natural world, you start to see increasing life in those areas. Paul gives us a good summary of this in Ephesians 2. He says quite simply, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Because of your sin, your relationships were broke. And he says in verse two, these relationships are this death, these sins uh, that you have, you once walked in them, you are following the course of the world, you are following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul uses that word nature to signify the fact that this is the very essence and core of who we are. By nature, our relationships are ruptured and because of the sin that is in our life, we are children of wrath. By nature, which means you're born that way. And all of us who have ever had children or had to babysit children or are around children at all, as much as we want to deny that reality that children are born wicked, it's just true. I have never met a parent who was teaching their four-month-old or five-month-old or six-month-old how to be selfish and how to hit. By the time they turn you know, a year old and they're walking around, they are proficient experts at stealing other people's stuff and beating people with it. How did they learn that? It is by nature. They're just bent that way. They're bent that way. And so we have this very uncomfortable truth that Paul writes about in Romans 3 that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And when you read a verse like this, in our cultural moment today, you probably recoil and go, ooh. I know it says no one, but I think there's probably someone. No. Either God's word is true or your opinion is true. I'm taking God's word every time because he rose from the dead and you didn't. I mean, that's, that's the kind of authority that I'm okay with. Uh, my word is true. How do I know it's true? Jesus will rise from the dead. He rose from the dead. All right, it's true. It's a good logic. And for one reason or another, people will deny that nobody is good. They will deny that we're dead at all. But the reality is, most basic to humanity is the fact that we are born in a state of death. 
where virtually all the core, every core relationship that we have in our life with God, with ourselves, and with others, and with the natural world around us is ruptured. It's broken. Then we jump to verse two. And now, after they have incurred guilt because of their false worship of Baal, denying God, and they have died, now they sin more and more. In other words, basic to what it means to be dead in sins and trespasses is that what you do is sin more and more, which means you increase the brokenness of the relationships around you. That's why a lot of people will harm themselves or will harm others. And when you ask them the question, why did you do that? So often, they cannot give an answer. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. It's, it's, it's weird. And I think the best explanation for it comes from scripture, which is to say, naturally speaking, we prefer sinful things which break relationships. We don't want that, it seems, but we just do it anyway for one reason or another. Now, what Israel was doing was this. They were making for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. In other words, what's happening is Israel is taking these metals, which is silver and gold perhaps, and they're making skillfully all of these little images which represent Baal worship. And they're bowing down to this golden image, which is not the creator of all things, but is made simply by the hands of a craftsman, a human being. What that means for us is this, is that these people are receiving the gifts from God, like silver, gold, and the skill to be able to fashion as a craftsman the silver and gold, and they're using them for Baal worship rather than using it to glorify God. Here's what we read in Hosea 2.8, that Israel didn't know that it was I, God says, who gave her the grain, wine, and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, and look what Israel does in response to being given all of these blessings from God they take these blessings from God and they use them for false worship. It's like, thank you, God. Thank you for this. Now I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it for something which will defame you and bring you no glory and no honor for which I will die. Or we read this. That he's going to punish them because of all their feasts, the Baals, because they were adorning themselves with rings and jewelry. They were going after their lovers, and they're forgetting the Lord. What's happening here? Well, what's happening here is Israel is no longer identifying God as the source of all that they have. Instead, they're attributing Baal as the source of all of the good that they have. Even though James teaches us, they didn't have uh, the book of James, but James teaches us every good and perfect gift comes from above. And yet they're receiving these good gifts and they're taking them and instead of rebounding 
back to the glory of God and enjoying these good gifts for the good of their neighbors. They're hoarding it all, not giving God the glory, not seeking to do good to their neighbors. They're just keeping it all. And they're using it for false worship and idolatry. And just imagine, brothers and sisters, you give a gift to a child in your family, whether it's your son or daughter or nephew or something, and it's intended to be used with, for instance, their brothers and sisters. You give them, for instance, a PlayStation 5, and you're like, all right, all three of you have to play with this. And the eldest goes, no. Takes the PlayStation 5, puts it in their room, and allows no one else to play with it. I'll tell you what I would do. <laughs> no PlayStation for you. Because that's not what that gift is intended for. And yet that's what people were doing. Paul writes it like this, Romans 1, they were claiming to be wise, but the reality is people who are unrighteous, people who are living in sin, people who are broken in all their relationships, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. And so therefore God gives them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In other words, God didn't give me this. They all gave me this. Or I earned this. Or I made this happen. And so they served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. The conclusion of the matter is simply this. The people were receiving from God good and gracious gifts but they were worshiping the gifts rather than the giver. And so God says, how dare you forget me? I'm the source of your goodness. And today, you and I are guilty just like Israel. We cut God out of the equation. No, 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 I did this. And so we see in verse three the conclusion of the situation. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, like smoke from a window. You probably know exactly what he's referring to here. If you've ever cooked something like frozen pizza and the cheese falls off and hits the bottom of the oven and starts, you know, making the smoke and you know, smoke detectors going off, you open all the windows and doors and you're fanning it and you're just looking at each other like, this is so dumb. As soon as that smoke gets out the window, you don't think about it and you don't see it. It's gone. And yet God says, because of your guilt due to your idolatry and false worship where you did not acknowledge me as your giver, and because of your death, your life is best described as smoke that goes away when it goes out the window. It's nothing. It's something that we read like in Hosea 6. What am I gonna do with you, my people, he says, O Ephraim and Judah, your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. It's like the Bay Area fog, man. You love me for a moment and then it's gone. Or you sow the wind, which means you try to live your life with meaninglessness and nothingness, and all that you're going to reap is more meaninglessness and nothingness, or the whirlwind. 
where you have plowed iniquity, you have sown all kinds of sin, and so what you're gonna get in return is injustice. You're gonna eat the fruit of lies. Why? It's because you have trusted in your own way. You haven't trusted me. You don't think that I'm behind it all. You think you did it. And so what Hosea is going to do is he's going to show us how ludicrous it is for Israel to think that they are the source of their own blessings. He compares what they're doing with worship of Baal in verse 1 with who he is in verse 4. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, which means from the time that I rescued you from Egypt, I have been your God and you have been my people. You have known no other God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. In other words, God makes it definitive. There are not many ways to be saved. There is only one Savior. It's God. That's it. And the people should have known that. Because he made it explicit, like in Exodus 19, when he redeems them from Israel or from Egypt, afterwards he says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Notice the relationship there, right relationship with God. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the whole earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God tells Moses. So Israel was redeemed by God out of bondage and slavery, given a new identity, which is you're my treasured people. I'm going to make for you a kingdom of priests. And then he says, I want you to obey my covenant and my commandments because that will be how you persevere in your new identity based on the redemption I gave you by grace. It is not you need to obey in order to be redeemed. It is you've been redeemed, given a new identity, now go and obey. And that is the basis of their new identity and the beginning of their relationship with God. And so Hosea recaptures that in verse four. He wants them to remember. What's amazing about this is that the people knew no other God but him. It wasn't Baal that rescued them from Egypt. It wasn't the gods of the Amorites or Hittites or Hivites or Jebusites. It was Yahweh. There's no other savior. They didn't save themselves. They didn't rescue themselves. It wasn't their own creativity. It was none of that. It was God. And I love the intimacy that we see here in Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Knew what? He knew them. He knew their pain. He knew their sorrows. He heard their groaning. He heard their crying. And he knew they needed his help. I love that word new there. In Hebrew, it's yada, which means it's the most intimate, intense word to represent relationship. It's what is used when a husband knows his wife, if you know what I mean. The most intimate, and God says, I know you in the most intimate ways. 
So we have a God who is both mighty to save and yet a God who is gloriously intimate with us who feels our pain. Wow. And it was from this predicament, from this situation in which God rescues his people. It's amazing that God would do this. And he says in verse five, Hosea, go back to chapter 13, verse five. It was I who knew you in the wilderness. It was I who knew your groanings. It was I who knew your pain. It was I who knew your sorrows. It was I who knew your needs. And so he met their needs. God met their needs time and time again. They were thirsty, he gave them water. They were hungry, he gave them food. Their sandals did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. He always met their needs. And it goes on to say in verse six, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This is explicitly what God said, don't do. I'll give you a quick sampling. I'm not gonna read everything. Just sample it real quick. Verse two, God says, you need to remember the whole way that I led you in the wilderness for 40 years. I did it this way to humble you, he says, to test you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep my commandments or not. And so what happens is God humbles his people and tests his people by allowing them to be hungry, but then to feed them. He allows them to be thirsty, but yet he gives them something to drink. And why did he do that? It's so that in verse, the rest of verse three, so that he might make you know, that is, his people know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You heard that verse before? Matthew 4, 4. Jesus quotes it. And so God reminds his people of how he provided for them. He says, your clothing didn't wear out. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. I came through for you every time. Name a time I didn't come through for you. And so he says, well, then know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. I'm like a father, I'm trying to train you up, I'm trying to teach you discipline. I'm gonna allow you to struggle, I'm gonna allow you to have difficulty in your life so that you would learn from that difficulty. And you're gonna be trained by it. And in being trained by it and dis disciplined from it, I'm loving you the best way I can because I want to test what's really going on in your heart. Do you really love me? Or do you just love the stuff I can give you? And then he goes on and he says, you know what? I'm gonna bring you into the land, verse 10, and you're gonna be full. You're gonna be blessed. Just like what he says in verse six, that the people became full, they were filled. But if you look in Hosea 13, six, when they got full, their heart was lifted up and they forgot the Lord. Even though in Deuteronomy eight, God says, take care or pay attention Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his rules, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and you are full and you build good houses and you live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply silver and gold multiplied, all that you have is multiplied, then all of a sudden your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware, verse 17, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand is what got me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as this day. And the rest of the text talks about if you choose to not be obedient to God, he's gonna wipe you out. 
And yet here is Israel, some a couple hundred years later, in the book of Hosea, who is being reminded of where they've come from. God has been with you. God intimately knows you. He knows your needs, and he came through for you time and time again. But every time he came through for you and you experienced the goodness of his blessings, you did not rebound it back to his glory and give him thanks and look to the good of your neighbors. Instead, you hoarded it all. You became full. Your heart became exalted, and you're like, I'm the one that did this. I don't need God. We're smart. We're creative. We're pretty people. We can do it ourselves. We have what it takes. And so they become self-confident, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and therefore God-rejecting. Because Deuteronomy 8.10 says we should, every blessing should be rebounded to God's blessing or, or glory. And yet, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 8 says most of us will, in our pride, pat ourselves on the back for all that we're able to accomplish. And so there's a conclusion. Because of the way in which we live, look at this in verse seven and eight. Pay attention to the word like. God is gonna use some similes, some poetic similes to come to help us understand who he is. In light of what the people have become, I'm going to be to them like a lion, like a leopard, and like a bear robbed of her cubs. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I'm out backpacking or camping, I'm not jonesing to be running into no lions and leopards and bears. Because I don't want to be attacked by a mountain from a mountain lion who stalks me, pounces on me from behind, breaks my neck, and then eats me. Mm-mm. That's not my idea of a good weekend. I don't want to be stalked like a leopard. I do not want to encounter a mama bear robbed of her cubs. Mm-mm. No way. And yet God says, you know these three kinds of things? Yeah. Well, I'm going to be like that to you. Oh, dude. I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to rip you to shreds. I'm going to hunt you down, stalk you, devour you. <laughs> Can you imagine if I ended the sermon right now? <laughs> That's why Hosea makes this appeal. Come, let us return to the Lord. Don't you understand that he has torn us, but it's so that he may heal us. He strikes us down, but it's so that he can bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us in a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. On the third day, he will raise us up, and that way we will live before him. In other words, God is deadly serious about sin, and you and I would do well not to play games with God because lions in the wilderness are not cuddly house cats. Leopards are not to be trifled with. And mama bears with no cubs are not what you win when you go to the carnival. That's why I love Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know I'm beating this like a dead horse. 
But I love what C.S. Lewis does when he helps us understand God through the character of Aslan. If you remember the children, you probably don't, but you should read the books. I'm telling you that it's worthwhile. But while they're at Beaver's hut, Mr. Beaver is asked the question by Susan, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver says, he's not a man, he's a lion. He's the great lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, anyone who stands before Aslan is either a great fool or dead. And so Lucy asks the question, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he is good. And that's exactly the kind of God we have. Brothers and sisters, us in our natural state with all of our sin, all of our God-hating and God-rejecting behavior and thoughts, we are not safe. God is a holy God but he is good. And at the very end of the book, I love this section, Aslan goes walking away and the children ask, will we see him again? And Mr. Beaver helps the children understand that Aslan is wild, you know. He is not like a tame lion. Helping us once again to remember God is not a tame God. You can't manipulate God. You can't control God. You can't tell God what to do and what not to do. He is God and you're not. And therefore, brothers and sisters, if we are to approach God, the only proper way to approach him is with fear and trembling because he's God. This kind of fierce language that God is like a dangerous wild beast, we like to cut out of our Bibles like we're you know, people who do that kind of stuff. We don't like it. Everything I've said, there's a lot of stuff I've said that our culture just hates. You probably hate this. By nature, we're sinful. We can't do anything good. God's a ferocious lion. And all this is like, no, he's not. Yes, yes, he is. In fact, verse nine, we see now, what is Israel gonna do? Who are they gonna turn to? If you've rejected God, what do you have left? In fact, here's what he says. God destroys you, O Israel. And what's the rationale? Because you're against Hosea, the prophet, but you're also against God, who's your helper. So here's God in Exodus 2 saying, I hear your groans and I hear your weeping and I hear your need and I am here to help. And the people go, we kind of don't need your help. We got this. And so if God, who is the only Savior and your only help, if you say, I don't want you to be my Savior or my help, I don't need you, then what will you turn to? What else is there powerful enough to rescue you from death? And here's what we read in Hosea 12, 6. Pastor Matt preached on it. So you, by the help of your God, return. That is, repent. Turn from your sins, turn to God. And then as a result, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. The only thing that the people of Israel could do in this moment is stop rejecting God. He is your only hope and your only help and your only savior. You have to stop resisting. But they kept refusing. And instead of going to God, Look at this in verse 10 and 11. God asks this question, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? 
Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me your king and princes? And the reason why he asks this question is because they're like, eh, we don't need to go to God because, like, everything that we're doing is kind of, it's kind of awesome. Our economy's growing, our infrastructure is being laid, our king protects us, we have military comfort and safety, our crops are growing, our kids are multiplying, we're becoming richer, healthier, more safe than we've ever been. What do we need God for? And I got all this stuff. And so they don't turn to God, they just turn to their political leaders and they turn to their economy. And so even though they know they're sick and even though they know that they are wounded by God because God has, as it says in verse 10, he's taken, or verse 11, God in his anger has taken away the king that he gave. They know that something's wrong. They got all these assassinations and all these coups happening and God's trying to awaken them to their need for him. When Ephraim and Judah sees their sickness and wound, do they turn to God? No. They go to Assyria. They send to the great king. But God says, he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. In other words, what they do, instead of going to God, is that they go to their nearest and dearest idol. Instead of acknowledging their guilt and seeking God's face, they just turn to their idols. They turn to the things that they have trusted in to make their life worth living. I'm gonna turn to my money. I'm gonna turn to my military. I'm gonna turn to my politics. I'm going to turn to my agriculture. I'm gonna turn to my family because in these things do I trust. And so what we read quite starkingly is this. Because you will not listen to God, God will reject you. But Israel figures, you know what, we don't really need to go to God. It's all good. Things are going real good for us. And today we often have that same kind of thing. I have known people who have thought to themselves, it's ludicrous to think that I need God. I mean, when I went to college, I went without God. Like he didn't write my applications. He didn't do the homework in high school. He didn't take the AP classes. I did. I'm the one that got accepted. I'm the one that did all the work. When I graduated from college, I'm the one that made all the apl- or, or applied for all the jobs. I'm the one that did the jobs interview. I'm the one that got hired. God didn't give me my paycheck. My employer did. What do I need God for? I'm the one that went on Groupon and got the uh, Groupon vacation. I'm the one that has backpacked through Europe. God didn't do that for me. I did that. God isn't the one who helped me to have kids who are well-adjusted, who get good grades and excel at sports and music. I did that. I helicopter parented them. (laughs) Or I snowplow parented them. If I had to do their homework for them, I did it. You see, my family, there's not people on drugs. People aren't doing crazy stuff. God is not the one that is hosting barbecues and swim parties with the neighborhood kids. I'm doing that. I'm not in crazy debt. I help other people when I can. What do I need God for? I woke up in the morning. I had bread in the pantry. I didn't even have to, like, grow the wheat. I put it in the toaster. I didn't even build the toaster. 
plugged it into the outlet. Didn't even need to do that. I know God didn't do it because I know our contractor who did. I was able to make toast. I got into a car that I didn't build. I know God didn't build it. Toyota built it. I drove to my job. I got gas on the way. God didn't make that gas. Chevron did. And I can do this all day long. But you see, in our culture today, this is often how we think. What do I need God for? Verse 12 of Hosea 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. Uh, Yowzers. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that God is keeping a record of their sins. He's bounding them up. He's keeping them in a storehouse. And God misses nothing. Uh, uh Uh-oh. It goes on to verse 13. The pangs of childbirth come for him. That is the one who has their sins bound up because he is like an unwise son. This is a weird image, but hang with me. He's like an unwise son for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I don't know much about this, but I was witness to this a couple times. Sometimes you hear the nurses or doctors say something like this. Well, the baby just doesn't want to come out. And that's kind of what's happening here. There's this stubbornness. And the stubbornness is the result of foolishness. Only a fool will tell themselves, I don't need God because I got all this stuff. And the reason why that's such a foolish way to think is because when you put your trust in politics or you put your trust in wealth or you put your trust in your beauty or you put your trust in other people, every one of those things has an expiration date and will at some point fail you. And when that moment comes, when you are utterly failed, where people abandon you or you get paralyzed and can't work or you, I don't know, your face gets weird and you're not as beautiful as you used to be. And now I'm in my 40s and you start realizing stuff like my hair is starting to creep down my back. You got the back fat and flab and you're just like, what's happening? Every day I wake up, my joints hurt, things don't work as they used to. I forget things. If I put all my trust in my body, One day I'm going to be disappointed. If I put all my trust in my wealth, you're going to be disappointed. Stock market can crash and you have no power over that. One day, if you put all your trust in your politics, the wrong guy or girl gets elected, you're going to lose your ever-loving mind. And then what? And then what? You will be helpless. You will be hopeless. You will be despairing. And for what? We say, God, God, I didn't need you. I had all of this stuff which is temporary and shallow. 
and I've forsaken the ultimate permanent stuff that you promised me in favor of this shallow temporary stuff. Give me things which are fleeting. I don't want permanent joy. What? Only a fool would do that. Why would you give up that which you could never lose in favor of that which you cannot keep? And yet we know, brothers and sisters, God takes things from us to test our hearts. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Or do you just love the stuff I can give you? So we read in the New Testament that God tempts us, not tempts us, excuse me, he tests us. Count it all, my joy, my brother. By the way, um, I was informed that there's a newsletter. I didn't get to read it, but anyways, all right, man, I shouldn't have said that. All right, let's start over. (laughs) When you read the New Testament, brothers and sisters, you must realize that they had it way worse than us. These Christians had nothing, no power, no clout, no influence. There was more disease, more death, more war, more chaos, more poverty, more infertility, more hatred, more racism than than anything we experience nowadays. And in that background, you read something like this, and it blows your mind. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it joy when God tests you to see what is genuine in your heart. Do you love me? Because if you pass the test, you're going to be like a 16-year-old kid coming out of the DMV. Woo! Guess who's driving tonight? Because you passed the test. And you will be complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God will test you. If you have idols in your heart, God is going to crush those idols and he's going to expose those idols. He's going to test you to see what you really love. Is Jesus really greater? And you see in 1 Peter, in this you rejoice, your salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, why does God grieve us with trials? It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than anything in the world, So that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Christ. The reason why God allows your trials and your testing is to see if you are genuine. Faith in Jesus is more precious than anything this world has to offer. And that's why the early Christians are are said this. It's amazing. Recall the former days when you were first enlightened, that is, you first became a Christian. You endured hard struggle with suffering sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. I love this line. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Here's my couch. Here's the keys to my car. Take the fridge. You can have it all. What makes you live like that? It's because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
So, brothers and sisters, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you, once you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I love this. As C.S. Lewis says, the pages of the Bible are rustling with the rumor that one day we will get glory. It's true. And this incomparable glory that God has promised us cannot be taken, cannot be shaken. And by comparison to everything the world has to offer, only a fool would choose what cannot last. And so, we come to the end and ask ourselves the question, what are you gonna do? What is Israel gonna do? And here's the graciousness of God. <laughs> Verse 14. It wasn't in your sermon outline, but it's God. I did it on purpose. Sneaky. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol or death or hell. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Have you heard those words before? Oh, yes, you have. It's because it's quoted by none other than the Apostle Paul in referencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when the perishable, that is these bodies which expire, put on the imperishable, that is the glorious resurrected body promised to us who have faith in Jesus, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is no victory outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in his infinite grace, has given to us his own son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, so that the brokenness of the world in which we all experience and languish under, the death, will one day give way to absolute indestructible life, where we will rightly relate to God, rightly relate to each other, rightly relate to ourselves, rightly relate to the natural world around us. And in that place, we will have absolute and all-satisfying joy in the presence of God. We didn't do that. Your beauty didn't do it. Your brains didn't do it. Your brawn didn't do it. Your government didn't do it. Your car, whether you drive a Tesla or a Yugo, it didn't do it. The only thing that can bring about the moment in which sin is vanquished, death is no more, is Jesus Christ. And so, this connects to communion. The Latin word for thanks or thanksgiving is Eucharisto which is what the church has traditionally called communion. It's the time of thanksgiving. And so what we're gonna do is transition into a time of thanksgiving in which we eat the bread and drink the cup, giving thanks to God who has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. 
So Father, thank you for ransoming us. Thank you for how you redeem us. God, thank you that there stood against us a record of debt because of sin, a record that you have kept from eternity past. And thank you that in Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 2, that record of debt of our sin has been canceled. He has paid it all. And by his blood, we have been washed anew. Our guilt is taken away. And we are given redemption and forgiveness in Jesus' name. And so I pray, Lord, any person here who has not yet received Jesus, God, today would be the day. God, that you would help them to become wise, to see that they need you. And God, that they would repent, turning from their sins and trusting you. And all your promises would flow to their hearts by the Spirit, forgiving them, cleansing them, renewing them, breathing life into them. And as we come now to this bread and this cup, God, may we be given the sense of joy in our hearts for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. To you be the glory for all the good you have given us forever and ever. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord Jesus invites anyone who has believed in Jesus, repenting of their sins and truly trusting in Jesus to come and to be welcome to the table and to eat and drink in Jesus' name as a way for us to give thanks to God for all that he's done for us in him. If you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet repented and believed in Jesus, we simply ask that you let these cups pass by because you have not yet embraced for yourself the saving grace and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. But if you're here today in hearing your need, it's absolutely now the time. It's the time to seek the Lord. And you're ready to confess your sins believe in Jesus, then take a cup with us and we ask that you would eat and drink with us. Today is a time for us, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to celebrate what the Lord has done. And so he invites us to come and to eat and drink in his name. We're gonna eat and drink together as a unity uh, to, to symbolize the unity of us as the family of God, to remember how the blood of Jesus washes us anew and how the body of Jesus given for us that we may have new life in him. The Apostle Paul wrote this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he gave it to the disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the folks are gonna come forward and they're gonna hand out the little communion cups. I'm gonna ask that you take and hold your cup. We're gonna eat and drink of it together to demonstrate our unity as a church. This is a great time, brothers and sisters, not to get right with the Lord, but it's a great time to remember how God has made you right with himself through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to have a time of singing. When you feel ready to sing, I want to invite you to join with Pastor David as he leads us in giving thanks for what God has done through Jesus Christ.
I invite you to open up the plastic layer that holds the bread portion. God has so loved us, dear brothers and sisters, that he knew our need, he knows our agony, he hears our cry for help. And God is the kind of loving father that did something for us, which is he sent his own son to rescue us. God in a real body, really living for us, really dying for us, really rising for us, really coming back for us, as real as this bread is in your hand. And he invites us to eat this in remembrance of him, to know that his promises are true. And so as Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you, take it and eat it in remembrance of me. So church, let's eat it in remembrance of Jesus. I invite you to turn over your cup and gently open your next layer. the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us white as snow. It's the blood of Jesus represented symbolically through this juice that's in our hands, which was shed on the cross, canceling our record of debt that stood against us, giving us redemption and ransoming us. And it symbolizes God's deep love for us. That he joyfully went to the cross he didn't do it reluctantly. He did it to have you as his own. And now we're united by this blood. So Jesus said, this blood, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And so church, let's drink it in remembrance of Jesus. Father, like the, like, the, <clears throat> like the Latin word Eucharisto, Father, we give you thanks, for in you we have the victory, so we can shout to Satan, to death itself, that you have no hold on me, for Jesus is risen. And we cry out to you, how great you are indeed for all that you've done for us. For your glory, for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
I'm going to leave you with this from the Apostle Paul where he writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so church, let's be sent out to share in this great love and grace that the Lord Jesus has secured for us. We'll see you next week.